Christians often talk about being free, but do we realize what we've been freed to do? Or have we adopted the world's definition of freedom? In this message from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 25, David Platt helps us understand the kind of freedom that God gives us in the gospel, a freedom that results in neither legalism nor license. It's a freedom that enables us to live by faith in God in the power of the Spirit. With this kind of freedom, we can walk in hope and with love for God and others. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, Free to Run. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Galatians chapter 5. If you have the worship guide you received when you came in, let me encourage you to pull out those notes. I think we've got things working in the first worship gathering we had little technical difficulties, so not all the notes are on the screen, so just be prepared. Hopefully, you're sitting next to somebody who actually like, pays attention when we study the words. You might need some help, but uh, hopefully they'll be on the screen. We'll see. Uh, we find ourselves in Galatians 5 this morning. I find myself one week out from a marathon, and uh, it is appropriate the, the text that we were looking at this morning actually talks about running a race. Uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I was running a marathon and training for a marathon, and uh, I mentioned that I had kind of gotten roped into this picture. Here's what happened. Uh, about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, my older brother who lives down in Florida, the marathon is down in Orlando at, uh, at Disney World, and he, he sent me an email challenging me to run this marathon. But he was underhanded in the way he did this, he, he copied Heather on the email, and he included information about all these exciting things to have for kids at this marathon. Before I had even received the email, Heather had responded to the email to my brother and said, David is in. <laughs> and I got home that night and I said, babe, what are you thinking? Like, what do you mean I'm in running a marathon? She said, didn't you see all the stuff they have for kids to do? I said, dear, I'll take the kids to Disney World and we'll do all kinds of fun things so I don't have to run 26 miles once I get there. <laughs> Nevertheless, the challenge was on and so, uh, and it seemed about a year out, so I thought, well, yeah, no problem. So uh, anyway, now I find myself uh, having trained uh, hopefully sufficiently enough to run uh, 26 miles. I've actually paid to enter this marathon. Is that ridiculous or what? I'm paying money to run 26 miles. So we come to this text in Galatians 5 where Paul's talking about running a race. And, and it's, a, it's a very important part in the whole book of Galatians. We've already seen up to this point, Galatians is, is kind of divided in a sense into two chapter blocks. Chapters 1 and 2 went together to really show us how we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And then chapters 3 and 4 go together to show us how it's grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. He's supreme and it's by Christ that we are delivered from slavery into sonship. We're not slaves, we're sons in a relationship with God. So we've seen that to this point. And it's been pretty deeply theological. What we have in Galatians chapter 5, not that Paul hasn't given us anything practical to this point, he has, but there is a decided shift from gospel theology to gospel practice, gospel theology to gospel living. And that's what we're going to see in Galatians chapter 5. And he's going to talk about 
running a race and how the Galatians had been running a race and now they're off track. And this is imagery that's familiar to Paul. Oftentimes he uses athletic imagery or imagery like that. It talks about how we're running a race or we're in a battle or in a war or in a fight. Now, what's, what's important, this is really important to note, whenever Paul uses imagery like this, he never uses this imagery to talk about what it means to come to faith in Christ, what it means to be justified, to use the language he's used at this point and shown us a picture of to this point. Instead, he always uses athletic imagery, running a race, fighting a battle even, to describe our life in Christ. And that's important because I think in our day today, a lot of us have this idea that, well, coming to Christ, you pray this prayer and you're, you're in, and now it's just smooth sailing. The Christian life is rolling down a hill with the wind breezing through our hair and everything's set. We believe in Christ. We're going to heaven, sealed. Let me move on with my life. That is not the way the New Testament describes the Christian life. The New Testament describes the Christian life as a battle, as a war, as a race, as a marathon, not even just a, 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 a sprint or 50-yard dash. It is a, it's a race that we're running in and struggling through and fighting through. That's the way Paul describes the Christian life. Now, how do you how do you struggle and fight and run but not be legalistic in the process, thinking you're trying to earn your way to God? And that's where Galatians 5 and 6 is going to help us and why Galatians 5 and 6 is so extremely important for us to understand today. So what I want to do is I want to read the first half of Galatians chapter 5 and then I want us to talk about what it means to be free in Christ. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Here's the imagery there. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go, to the, go the whole way and emasculate themselves. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> you, my brothers, you know how exciting our time was going to be in the Word this morning. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Father, we... We pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to understand the riches of your Word, specifically the riches of what it means to be free in Christ, that you would take the gospel theology that we've been studying for the last few weeks in this book, and you would show us how it affects our lives 
the way we live this week, that you would take your gospel and the freedom that's been bought for us in Christ and enable us to walk in it and in, to enjoy it, to run in it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Chapter 5, verse 1, is one of the most important, if not the most important verses in this book because it really encapsulates the whole picture. If you don't have it underlined, I would encourage you to underline it. What Paul does in this first verse and fifth chapter, he says, sums up everything he said at this point. It's for freedom. Christ has set us free. Set us free. As a result of freedom, stand firm then and don't be yoked again to slavery. Run in freedom. So what Paul does is he starts talking about Christian freedom. I'm convinced that this word, freedom, is one of the most abused and misunderstood words in the entire Christian vocabulary. All kinds of people claim freedom in Christ to indulge in all kinds of things that have nothing to do with Christ. And so we need to see a biblical picture of what it means to be free in Christ. What Paul does is he starts by talking about two, two enemies of Christian freedom, and you see those kind of permeating throughout this passage we just read, and then we see Christian freedom described. So that's how I want us to take it. First, two enemies of Christian freedom. Number one is legalism. It's one we've already seen a lot to this point. Legalism is that first blank there. Christian freedom enemy to Christian freedom is legalism, working to earn the favor of God. Whether according to our own rules or according to God's rules even, it's working to earn the favor of God. It's legalism. Now what Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 5 is he's addressing the picture of legalism that is being promoted by the Judaizers in the churches in Galatia. The example of legalism, there you got your notes, the example that he's used is circumcision. Now, it's something he has talked about a good bit up to this point, but specifically he addresses it in the verses we just read. The Judaizers were saying, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. You need to be circumcised in order to be made right before God. You need to do this. Now, it's important that we realize Paul was not against circumcision in and of itself. Earlier in the book, he talked about how he didn't want Titus to be circumcised, and he encouraged Titus not to be circumcised because in doing so, Titus would be showing that apparently you need to do this in order to be saved. At the same time, at another point in the New Testament, Paul actually encourages Timothy to be circumcised. This is why later in this passage, you see Paul talk about how some are accusing him of preaching circumcision because he told Timothy, you need to be circumcised. The reason was, first of all, Timothy's mom was a, a Jew, but then more importantly, Paul and Timothy were working among Jews, and this was a, a barrier, so to speak, to the Jews receiving the gospel, hearing the gospel from them. And so what they did is they said, it'd be better for the advance of the gospel if you were like them, kind of what Paul talks about, become like you in order to lead you to Christ. So Paul's not against circumcision. He was circumcised. The difference is Paul is adamantly against circumcision and or anything else that we put as a regulation or rule to follow in order to achieve salvation, in order to be made right before God or earn favor before God. He's against Sabbaths. He's against feasts. He's against anything, no matter how small or how big, that we put on the table to think, when I do this, I'm going to earn favor before God. Now, circumcision is the deal here in Galatians, but there are innumerable examples of legalism like this around us today. There are Many people who believe, well, if I do work for the church, or do work in the church, then I'm earning favor before God. Many people base 
their status before God on the frequency of their personal devotions. And if time in prayer and in the Word is going well, then I'm right before God. If it's not going well, well, then I don't want to be around God. No, I'm not right before God. I don't have favor before God. A lot of people base their favor before God based on an aisle they walked or a prayer they prayed or a hand they raised. Well, that, that, that was it. And here's the deal. No matter how small or big, if we put anything that we do, anything that we do as the means by which favor before God is earned, then we're undercutting the gospel. It's legalism. No matter how small or big, we're undercutting. The example here is circumcision. The effect of legalism is contamination. Paul says in verse 9, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. What Paul is saying is legalism spreads. Just a little bit spreads, and it spreads violently. It's like Paul's saying one drop of poison, just one small drop can destroy the whole body. This is the picture in the church. It's why he's so vehement here about addressing circumcision because of the contamination it was bringing throughout the church. And it's why in the church today, we have a responsibility, us in this room, the church of Brook Hills, we have a responsibility to vehemently oppose anything, any teaching in any small group, in large group gathering that is not gospel-centered, gospel-saturated. Any teaching that's not gospel needs to be weeded out completely because it contaminates the whole church. Things that we may not even think are that big a deal. People say, well, justified by faith or justified by faith alone? Is there really that big a difference? Yes, there's a radically big difference, and we've got to differentiate between the two. Well, Jesus is a way to God, and Jesus is the way to God. Is it really that big a difference? Can't you believe one and the other? No, absolutely not. These are huge. We've got to be careful to guard the gospel in the church. That's what Paul is saying, because the effect is contamination, and the end of it, the result of legalism, is condemnation. This is when Paul gets really serious. He says in verse 10, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one, listen to this, the one who is throwing you into confusion, who's promoting legalism, will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. You promote legalism in the church, you will pay a price, Paul says. And then he gets down to verse 12. As for those agitators, I wish they could go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Uh, Paul is basically saying that he wishes these Judaizers who were talking about circumcision would basically just finish the job. This is not Bob Barker talking about having your pets spayed or neutered. This is Paul saying, Paul saying, one translation says, tell those who are disturbing you, I would like to see the knife slip. You, you know, I, I've prayed about how to even address this verse right here. How do you even begin to describe I've said some, I think I've said some hard things uh, from the pulpit here in Brooklyn. I've never said this right here, though. <laughs> Why does Paul say this? Is he just being crude? No. Paul is showing us that anything that undercuts the gospel should be met with great force. Luther, I love the way Luther put it. He said, talking about Galatians 1 and this passage, he says, here the question arises whether Christians are permitted to curse. 
Yes, they are permitted to do so, but not always and not just for any reason. But when things come to the point where the word is about to be cursed or it's teaching and as a consequence God himself blasphemed, then you must invert your sentence and say, blessed be the word in God and cursed be anything apart from the word and apart from God, whether it be an apostle or an angel from heaven. I love the way John Stott put it. He said, if we were as concerned for God's church and God's word as Paul was, we too would wish that false teachers might cease from the land. Be passionate about protecting gospel truth in the church, Paul says, because, because any small bit of legalism contaminates the whole church and ultimately brings condemnation. So, this is the first enemy of Christian freedom, legalism. Second enemy of Christian freedom is license. License. Now, license is the opposite of legalism. Legalism says, obey the law and earn favor before God. License says, forget about the law altogether. This is what Paul's opponents, so to speak, would say to him. They would say, if we're saved by faith alone, we don't have to do anything, well, then people are just going to live licentious lives. They're just going to indulge in themselves all the time. And Paul knows that that's a possibility, a possible perversion of the gospel. And so he addresses it here in Galatians chapter 5, which we're going to see in a minute. And it's so important. So many supposed Christians who say, well, I'm free in Christ. That means I can live however I want. It means I can do whatever I want. Freedom in Christ. This is what I have in Christ. And freedom in Christ all of a sudden becomes a basis for all kinds of loose living, licentious actions. And this is not the gospel. People say, well, I believed in Christ. I prayed the prayer and I believed in Christ. And now I know I'm going to heaven. It doesn't matter what I do. And Paul says, gospel truth is never intended only to be believed. Gospel truth is always intended to be obeyed. Gospel truth is never, never, never intended only to be believed. It is always intended to be obeyed. This is the language Paul uses when he brings in this imagery in verse 7. He says, you were running a good race who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth. Now, He's not talking about obedience here as a means to earn favor before God. That's legalism. Obedience is a means to earn favor before God. That's legalism. But that doesn't mean obedience is just thrown out of the picture. Obedience is still a fundamental part of the Christian life. But it's no longer a means of earning favor before God. It's something very different, which Paul's going to show us what it is. But it's not just thrown out the window. People say, well, I accepted Jesus. So it doesn't matter what I do. I'm going to heaven when I die because I accepted Jesus. Gospel truth is never intended to be accepted in our heads. It's always intended to be applied in our lives. Never intended only to be accepted in our heads. Gospel truth always intended to be applied in our lives. So how is the gospel applied in our lives? That's what leads us to Paul's description of Christian freedom. You've got legalism over here, license over here, and then you've got liberty. You've got Christian freedom. So how do you avoid legalism and license? You bring them together in liberty, Christian freedom. And Paul gives us a description of what that is. And it is a beautiful description. I hope that this will connect 
a lot of the dots that we have been talking about, not just during the series on Galatians, but in the last year, put some of these things together. Four essentials of Christian freedom. What we're going to do is we're going to look at these essentials based on verses 5 and 6. We talked about verse 1 being a very important verse in the whole book. In this passage we just read, central verses, verses 5 and 6. You might underline these in your Bible. By faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. That is a loaded verse. And he says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what I want us to do is I want us to take those two verses and I want us to see what Christian freedom is all about. Essential number one, Christian freedom. We live by faith. We live by faith. That's what he starts verse five with. By faith, we eagerly await the spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. Now, this is, this is not a new thing for us in Galatians. We see this all over Galatians, right? It's Paul always talking about faith. What he's doing is he's reminding us, okay, we're taking gospel theology, applying it to gospel living. We are not, this is in your notes, we are not working for God. Christian life is not an employee-employer relationship with God. It's not Christianity. It's how we often think about Christianity. We may not put it that way, but oftentimes we, are, we see ourselves as employees of God and God has enlisted us for His services. And we do these things, and when we do these things, we're earning favor before God. And Paul addresses this, Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. He says, when a man works as an employee, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, any employer in this room knows that you pay employees not as much as a gift to them as an obligation to them. You're obligated to return, give them money in return for their services. Then Paul says, however, to the man who does not work, but who trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So righteousness is not an obligation. Favor before God even is not an obligation that God gives to us because of what we do. Instead, it's something we're given by faith. We're not working for God. Now what Paul does is he hits this from three different angles in verse 2, 3, and 4. I want to show them to you. Verse 2, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, if you try to work for God, he says, first, Christ will be of no value to you. So if we try to work for God, if that's what Christianity is about, us figuring out how to work better for God this week and us coming together every week, being a people who are trying to work for God, if that's the case, then number one, we will lose the benefits of Christ. We will lose the benefits of Christ. Christ will have no value to you at all, Paul says. Paul says, you depend on your work, then you don't need Christ's work anymore. Apparently, you can do what it takes to earn favor before God, and therefore the work of Christ is not necessary for you anymore. Either you need Christ for everything, or you will have Christ for nothing. You lose the benefits of Christ whenever you add the smallest work. No matter how small you might think it might be, whenever you or I add the smallest work, we're saying well, I need to do something here, and you're undercutting the whole value of Christ. So we lose the benefits of Christ. Second, we gain, we lose the benefits of Christ, and we gain the burden of the law. 
Paul says in verse 3, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Paul says you pick up this one small part of the law, you're picking up the whole deal with it. And as soon as you say I'm going to do this in order to earn favor before God, then you've got to do everything to earn favor before God. And you've taken the law and you've put that burden on your shoulders. You didn't intend to. When you try to obey the law in this area to try to earn favor before God, then you've got to do it in every single area. So we lose the benefits of Christ, we gain the burden of the law, and ultimately we miss the grace of God. He says in verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. Now this verse causes a bit of confusion. A lot of people read this verse and they start thinking, well, does this mean you can when it says fall from grace, it means you can lose your salvation. And obviously we have seen, as we have studied God's word, that Scripture nowhere teaches that we can lose our salvation. And Paul doesn't teach that here in Galatians. All throughout this, this book, he's referring to the Galatian Christians as brothers over and over and over again. And not one time does he talk about being unjustified. It's not a term in Paul's vocabulary. It's not a picture that he ever gives us. It's not talking about being unjustified. In fact, we see a, a strong confidence that the Spirit of Christ in these believers will, will bring them out of this. But what Paul is saying, the word he uses there to fall from, literally in the original language of the New Testament, means to lose grasp of, to lose your hold on. And the picture he's saying to them, you're saved by grace and you clung to it, but now... Now you're letting go of the very grace for which you've been saved and you're beginning to live like you weren't saved by grace. It's not adding up. So hold on to grace. Don't let go of grace. Hold on to grace. Luther said, what can be more insane and wicked than to want to lose the grace and favor of God and to retain the law of Moses, whose retention makes it necessary for you to accumulate wrath and every other evil for yourself. Don't work for God. Don't try to work for God. We are not working for God. Well, then what are we doing? What is Christianity about? We're not working for God. We are trusting in God. We are not working for God because, ladies and gentlemen, God is working for us. Now again, not an employee-employer relationship, and now we're the employer and God's the employee. No, but we talked about this. God's pleasure in us is not based on our performance for Him. Instead, God's pleasure in us is based on whose performance? Christ. Christ's performance for us. Everything we do that we would label working for God, praying, studying the Word, working in the church, doing all of these things, even those things are God working in us for us. There's nothing we can do for God that He is not doing for us, in us. The work we work in, Colossians 1, is the work that Christ so powerfully, the strength which Christ provides in us. Even our gifts to God are gifts from God. Even our gifts to God are gifts from God. He is doing it all in us because He gets the glory for everything that's going on in us. That's the picture. So we're not working for God. We're trusting in God. We live by faith. He gets to the end of that back to back to back in verse 2, 3, and 4. And he says, by faith, by faith, by faith. We live by faith. So the life of freedom is a life of faith. All revolves around faith in Christ. So that's first essential. Second, we live 
Christian freedom, we live by faith and we live through the Spirit. We live through the Spirit. Verse 5, by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit. Christian freedom happens through the Spirit. Now, Holy Spirit is all over the book of Galatians and especially here in chapters 5 and 6. Chapters 5 and 6, and we'll see this even more in the last half of this chapter. Chapters 5 and 6 are just a portrait of the Spirit-filled life and the role of the Holy Spirit and the transformation the Holy Spirit brings in our lives. So Christian freedom is dependent on living through the Spirit. So what does the Spirit do in us? Well, first of all, the Spirit enables us to experience the presence of Christ. We've seen this already in Galatians. Chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 5. The life, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, how does that happen? Christ lives in you, or Christ lives in me. How does Christ live in you? How does Christ live in me? Through who? The Spirit. The Spirit. Holy Spirit of God is the one who dwells in us and enables us to experience the presence of Christ in us. The Spirit is the one who unites our lives with Christ. If the Spirit's not there, then Christ is still out here and we're here. But because of the Spirit, then Christ is in us. This is huge for Christian freedom because we are not free from Christ. Instead, we are free to Christ. Now, when I say we're not free from Christ, we're free to Christ, that seems obvious. And it is obvious. But so many people think that Christian freedom means, well, I, I live however I want. I do whatever I want. I make my own decisions. I live according to the lifestyle I choose. I do what I want. And what we've got to realize is that whenever we say that, Whenever we say, well, because I'm free, I live however I want, the reality is what we're admitting when we say that is we are living in slavery and we're not free at all. Think about it. I live however I want. Even in that picture we see that we're living as slaves to ourselves and our desires and what we want. Sinful nature desires these things. I'm free to live for those things. No, you're slaves to yourselves. You have been delivered from that. You're free from yourselves and free from your sin. You're free to who? To Christ. Now you're free to live however Christ wants. You weren't before, but by the grace of God in your life through faith in Christ, now you're free to live the way you were created to live in Christ. You're free to experience the beauty and the glory and the joy of the presence of Christ in your life. That's what you're free to. Not free from Christ to yourselves to do whatever you want. You're free from yourself to Christ to do whatever He wants. And the beauty of it is now he begins to transform your wants and begins to transform your desires so that what you want is what Christ wants and not what the world wants, not what self, sinful nature wants. That's what we'll see in the next verses that come in Galatians chapter 5. But the picture is the Spirit enables us to experience the presence of Christ. We're free to Christ. And not just the presence of Christ, but the Spirit enables us to enjoy the commands of Christ. Now here's where it gets really exciting we're going to talk more a little bit later about, about 
the law and the law's relationship to us once in the Spirit. But the picture here is Christ by His Spirit, when Christ is living in us, that doesn't mean we're free from the words of Christ, the commands of Christ that He's given us. Remember, we're free to Christ, free to His Word, free to His commands. So when we come to the New Testament, we don't say, well, I'm free, so I'm just going to leave that behind and live however I want. No, now we're free to obey the law of Christ and the commands of Christ and the words of Christ. This is exactly what Jesus says, John chapter 15. Remember, if you love me, you will obey my what? Commands. You'll obey my commands if you love me. And I say this so that you'll remain in my love and my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. So not only will you obey them, but you'll enjoy them. You'll want them. You'll desire them. Because you're in a love relationship with me. This is why you get to 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. And, and John says, this is love for God to obey his commands. Now think about that. How do we look at 1 John 5, 3 and not say legalism? Obey his commands, do this, and you'll earn love for God. That's not what it's saying. It's not what Scripture is teaching. What Scripture is saying is obedience, love toward God go together. And their fruits of the Spirit of Christ in us, which is why right after that in 1 John 5, 3, the Bible says His commands are not burdensome. Before, when we were slaves to the law, the law was a burden that we were trying to carry. Now, the words of Christ are a delight because He is living in us through His Spirit. And by faith, through the Spirit, we are walking in His commands. We are enjoying His commands. And the New Testament is life for us. His words, we delight in His law. We love His words because Christ in us loves His words and He's transforming who we are. This is what happens by faith through the Spirit. As a result, we're not free to sin. We are free from sin. We're not free to indulge in sin. That's what Paul talks about later in verse 13. We're not free to sin. We're free from sin. We don't say, well, I, I've been saved and now I can sin all I want. I'm going to heaven. That makes no sense. Misses the whole point of the gospel. You're not free to sin. You're free from sin. So walk in freedom by faith through the Spirit, you see how Paul is addressing legalism and license. Legalism, live by faith, not working for God, trusting in God. License, no. If you have the Spirit of Christ in you, then you're not indulging in the things of this world and calling it freedom. No, the Spirit of Christ in you is enabling you to obey the Word of Christ day in and day out. And you're trusting Him to do it by faith through the Spirit. Freedom is a good thing. And it's biblical. Really good. By faith through the Spirit. Next gets even better. Not that it hasn't been good to this point, but it gets even better. We live by faith through the Spirit in hope. Third essential in Christian freedom. We live in hope. Verse 5, by faith we eagerly await, not work, we wait through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. So Paul here describes the Christian life as waiting. Even when he's talking about running here, he said we're waiting. How do you run and wait at the same time? 
How do you live a Christian life where you're not working for God, but you're waiting in the sense, what is he talking about here? And what he's saying when he says we live in hope, that word waiting implies that there's something out there in the future that we're looking forward to, that we're wanting and we're waiting for. So what are we waiting for? What are we wanting that's out there in the future? And what he says is we long for, we want, we desire, we look forward to, we're waiting for the guarantee of his righteousness. The guarantee of his righteousness. Paul says we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Now, even by the way I word that, I don't want to in any way imply that, that our salvation is not guaranteed, that the guarantee of our salvation is based on our works. That's not what Paul's teaching, not in any way what I wanted to say here. But the picture that Paul's giving us here when he says we wait through the Spirit, the, await through the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope, what he's saying is that he knows there's coming a day. We know there's coming a day when we will stand before God. Now, we are already counted righteous in Christ. We have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through Christ. We've been reconciled to him. We've been clothed in his righteousness. All these things are realities now. But, we know that there is coming a day in the future when we will stand before God and we will experience the fullness, the full manifestation of, the full realization of our righteousness in Christ. And Paul says we long for that day. We look forward to that day. I love this. This is Paul saying, I can't wait for the day of judgment. I cannot wait to stand before God and to experience the fullness of the righteousness of Christ applied to my life. What a great picture. Let me ask you a question. Do you long with eager anticipation for the day when you'll stand before God, that day of judgment? This is not how we think about the day of judgment. Most people don't think, I look forward to what happens when I die and I stand before God to give an account for my life. And as long as we're living in legalism, then we should not look forward to that day. Because there's more work to do. There's more boxes to check off. It's got to do a few more things to make sure we're going to make the cut. And if we're living in license, then we're not looking forward to the today. We show it by the way we're living. We're enjoying today. All the stuff that this world has to offer us. Thoughts are not on that world. But freedom is living with eager anticipation for the day when the full realization of the righteousness of Christ is applied in our lives and our salvation is complete. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So we long for the guarantee of his righteousness, and we live to grow into his righteousness. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. We have a righteous standing before God. We're counted, in righteous, counted righteous in Christ because of faith in Christ. We know that our, we're going to heaven based on the righteousness of Christ that is there, but we still sin, don't we? We struggle with sin. We battle and we war with sin, just like Paul talks about it. We want to experience the fullness of his righteousness, but but we have sin that we struggle with here. And this, is, this just transforms the Christian life. This is freedom. And you can tell, you can tell 
The Christian. You can tell the person who's been saved by faith, walking through the Spirit in hope, because when our eyes are set on the righteousness of Christ in heaven, and we're living for the day when we will experience the fullness of His righteousness, then when we sin here, when we fall, that moment in the day we fall, we think, no, no, I don't want that. I'm free from that. Not free to do that. I don't want that. I want the fullness of his righteousness. I'm not working to earn righteousness. My righteousness is heaven. And I cannot wait for the day when I will experience the fullness of it. And I want to live in it now. I want to live in it more and more and more every day. By faith, through the Spirit, living to grow into his righteousness. The free life is good. It's really good. It's not easy. It's a race. It's a marathon. It's 26 miles. And you're at mile two you got 24 to go, but you know that mile 26 is coming. You know that you're going to cross that finish line. You know the victory is going to be yours. I don't necessarily know that for sure next week, but you know that in the Christian life. You know the day's coming when you're going to cross the line, and God's going to say, right in Christ. And so you're running, and you're living to experience that fullness. This changes the way you run. You don't run like you don't have hope. You don't run like you're defeated. You don't run like you're always getting distracted. No, you run because you want to get to the finish line. This is the picture of the Christian life. Freedom is good. It's what Paul talks about. Oh, Romans 8, 24, 5, 6, somewhere in there when he says, we know the whole creation is groaning. It's in the pains of trouble right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we ourselves who have the Spirit in us, groan inwardly. As we wait, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about going through suffering. He says, it's going to end one day. I'm groaning inwardly. I'm waiting eagerly for that day. For in this hope we were saved, he says, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. We hope for what we do not yet have, and we wait for it patiently. Talk with one brother after the gathering, earlier gathering this morning, and Back in June, he and his wife lost a child, young child, infant, and in the process discovered there was a problem with his wife. She had cancer, and just a couple of weeks ago, she passed away. His brother has been through so much in the last six months. He says, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for full redemption. The completion of salvation for this to one day be declared over and to experience the fullness of righteousness. This is the picture. It's what we live. This is a free way to live. Hope. Not with fear of death. If you fear death this morning, I urge you at this moment right now, trust in the righteousness of Christ for you. Trust in the righteousness of Christ for you. Don't keep trying to Figure out what you can do later today to make sure you're going to be okay and get rid of this fear. No, trust in the righteousness of Christ for you right now at this moment. Say, yes, I believe you have died on a cross for my sins and you've risen from the grave and your righteousness is mine, free, free, not as an obligation, but as a gift. And I trust in you. Change me. I live by faith through your spirit. And I want the hope. I want the hope that you give. And he gives it. He gives it. Do it now. Trust in him right now. Eternity is based on this. Be free. We live by faith through the Spirit in hope. Last component of Christian freedom. 
told you, it's getting good. By faith, through the Spirit, in hope, with love. We live with love. Verse 6, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That is such a monumental phrase. Faith expressing itself through love. This is not Paul saying we're justified by faith and love. It's not adding love to the equation. Justified by faith alone. But it's a faith that expresses itself through love. Now this is how we can look in books like book of James, 1 John, and we can see James talking about, well, if there's no works from your faith, then your faith is dead. First John say, if the love of God is not in you, then you're not a child of God. Because faith, faith alone, means by which we're justified. We've seen that over and over and over again, but it's expressed through love. What Paul is saying is that love is essential to salvation, not as a means of salvation. Loving others, means of salvation? No, that's legalism. But love is an essential expression of faith. Faith expressing itself through love. And we will, you will know my disciples by their what? Love. By their love. It will be evident. This is why. Connect the dots here. Radical in the fall. What we talked about there. 30,000 children today. Dying of either starvation or preventable disease. If we indulge in our luxuries here and turn a deaf ear to the poor there, then that's not faith expressing itself through love. That doesn't mean we'll go out and try to love, try to do for them so that you can earn salvation. No, it means there's a problem with our faith because it's not being expressed through love. And so go back to your faith. It's Christ in you, number one. And then number two, if Christ is in you, then ask him to produce this kind of love through you. Trust him to do it. Say to him, I need you to do this. This is the picture Faith express. It's what Paul says in verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Paul has just spent five plus chapters telling us that we're free and we're no longer slaves. Then he gets to verse 13, and in the second half of this verse, he says, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. And the word for serve there is literally the New Testament word for slave. That's weird. You are free. You're not a slave anymore. And you're free to be slaves. Now be a slave. Let's just close the book. I, we just don't get it, Paul. That's, that's, how, what do you mean we're free to be slaves? Here's what Paul's saying. You got this in your notes. Unpack this. We are free from slavery to the law. He has said this. We got to be careful here. This doesn't mean the law is bad and we just leave it behind, especially New Testament law, law of Christ. 
In fact, we'll see later in, in Galatians 6, 2, and when we carry each other's burdens, when we love one another, we fulfill the law. So the law is apparently good. Words of Christ are good. Commands of Christ are good. Not Mosaic law. New covenant, new picture, whole other story. But the picture here is we're slavery to the law as a burden that we're trying to carry in order to earn favor before God. We're free from slavery to the law, but we are free to the slavery of love. We are free to be slaves to one another in love. Don't miss the difference. Slavery to the law, involuntary, burden walking under it, trying to earn favor before God. Slavery to love means joyfully, joyfully living for the sake of other people out of love for them. Slavery of love. I, I was trying to think of a good analogy, illustration, relationship that, that could help us picture to this. And I think the closest thing is marriage. But even then, although it's designed, Ephesians 5 is a picture of this, it's still insufficient. When you picture the slavery of love, just picture Christ. Picture Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be what? Serve. Not to be served, but to serve. He came to serve. Why? Because he was obligated to? Because he had to? His burden to? No, because he desired to. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you think of the slavery of love, think of the passion, the death of Christ cross. Think of the cross when you think of slavery of love. And here's the reality. When the Christ who came not to be served but to serve and to sacrifice his life for us, when that Christ is living in you, that radically changes the way you live in relationship with the people around you. Doesn't it? Doesn't it make sense? How can you live for yourself when Christ is in you? It's not possible. You live for other people. You live to serve. You're a slave to other people. You sacrifice yourself for other people. That's the picture. It's New Testament community. It's the New Testament church. We're free to the slavery of love. So we no longer indulge ourselves in selfish sin. That's verse 13. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Now, this is so huge when we talk about freedom. We're Americans, and we talk about freedom all the time. We protect our freedoms. We fight for our freedoms. We cling to our freedoms, debate our freedoms, all of these things, freedom, freedom, freedom. What do we mean when we say freedom? At the core, don't we mean I'm free to do whatever I want? You think about it, even the current debates, moral debates that are going on in our country today. I'm free to believe whatever I want. I'm free to marry whoever I want. I'm free to live according to however I want. I'm free to do however I want. I read one sociologist. I think he was spot on. He said, freedom is perhaps the most resonant, deeply held American value. Yet freedom in America means being left alone by others, not having other people's values, ideas, or styles of life form, forced upon you, being free of arbitrary authority in work, family, and political life. Free to do whatever you want, believe whatever you want, think however you want, live however you want. It's autonomy, freedom. Now, I want you to think about how we take that, and that, I would say, misunderstood concept of freedom, and we bring it into the church. 
and we say, I'm going to follow Christ, but I'm going to live however I want. I'm going to follow Christ, but I'm going to follow him on my terms so that when he says, give up everything you have to be my disciple, I'm going to take that verse and put it over here in my mind. It doesn't apply to me. When he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor, I'm going to take that verse and put it over here because that doesn't apply to me. And I'm going to pick and choose the areas of life that fit best with me according to Scripture, and that's what I'm going to live according to. That is not New Testament Christianity. It's slavery to ourselves, and it's what we've been free from. It's slavery to our stuff, and it's what we've been free from. The picture is we are free not to indulge ourselves in selfish sin, not to indulge ourselves in all the stuff we want. We are free now to serve each other with selfless love. He says the entire law summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't you love this? This is Paul saying, you know that natural inclination you have in you that exalt yourself? Well, use that to change the way you look at others. Practically. The Bible says, you know, that zeal you have when you feel hungry to get some food, you know how you Take care of that and you provide for that. Take 30,000 children that are dying today of starvation, preventable diseases, and you live with that kind of zeal to get them food. And you know, you know how thankful you are inside that someone introduced you to Christ? Live with that kind of zeal for a billion people in the world who haven't even heard of Christ. You know, you know that passion you have to get all the details in your life right? Care about all those details. Live with that kind of passion for the detail, details in the life of the brother or sister that is sitting right next to you. This this is an unnatural way to live. And it's exactly what Paul's saying. You can't manufacture this kind of love. That's the point. How does it come? How do you have that kind of love? By faith through the Spirit. It's faith expressing itself through love. We need Christ to give us this kind of love. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Later on, you, we haven't even looked at the verse. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. It's where it starts. Love. Spirit produces this kind of love. And so we need to go to Christ and to say, I need you. I need it's a lack of faith is what it is. Brothers and sisters, it's a lack of faith that keeps us clinging to our stuff and are indulging in luxuries and ignoring the poor. It's a lack of faith because, because we need to trust God that he's better than all of those things, that Christ is sufficient and satisfying more than all those things. And we need to ask Christ to give us freedom from those things to begin to love like he loves in us. How are we going to let go of our stuff and give ourselves to the poor and the nations? We're going to do that when Christ takes over our hearts. 
We need Him to take over our hearts by faith through the Spirit. We need Him to do this in us. That's the only way we're going to lay down our lives and sacrifice everything for the sake of the glory of Christ in all nations when Christ has radically taken hold of our hearts. And it's a faith that expresses itself through love. This is the only way that you're going to begin to share the gospel with that person in your workplace that's sitting right next to you that you know you want to share the gospel. You know they need to hear the gospel. You've got this insecurity, this timidity. Well, you need Christ in you. You need Christ to give you the strength and love to overcome that insecurity and say, yes, I want to share the gospel with you. Christ changes everything. It's the life of freedom by faith, through the Spirit, in hope, with love. Free to serve each other with selfless love. You see how we have so misunderstood and abused this concept. Christian freedom, living by faith, through the Spirit, in hope, with love. Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacy Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram 